Tom Evans is a psychologist who has worked in private practice for two decades and now works in the complex and pretty challenging space rehabilitating sex offenders. In this episode, we step into some difficult and dark areas of the human psyche with Tom as we explore primitive drivers and sexual dictates, how young men learn about consent and sexual behaviour, and what we should be teaching them about healthy and consenting sex. Tom also shares his own experience as a victim of crime and how this traumatic experience has informed his practice and the way he works with and understands the psychology of young men. This conversation deals with some pretty difficult topics, but within the darkness Tom sees in human behaviour, he works to find the light to enable hope and healing for perpetrators and for humanity at large. Here's our conversation with Tom. Tom, a lot of people will have heard recently in the media, we've seen stories about issues of consent and sexual assault uh, playing out in some of the schools in Sydney and then also at federal parliament. Why do you think we're still facing issues of sexual consent and assault in our modern society? I'd say there's a, there are many social forces at play at the moment, but there's always an issue on around how we raise our young men and how we make them from boys you know, into men, how we have our, our rituals that go from the kindergarten and the schoolyard to, to the adult world. There are biological drivers that are going on for, for young boys and coming into men through puberty and uh, it's what we reward and it's what we focus on and it's what we ignore that uh, is really at play here. I think um, the online world is, you know, um, I'm in a generation which started without the online world and now I'm, we're in it. So we've we've seen too with this generation that only knows it. So there's a whole culture there regarding sex, masculinity, alcohol, visual imagery. It's a credible melting pot of how a boy might be raised in that world, in the dual world of being at home and then also a, a world of online. Mm. And, I, and I think we don't really appreciate the pressures or just the reality of their online life as opposed to the life they live at, at home. I mean, one of the things we know is that rituals are very important in our story, the stories we tell ourselves, how they anchor us, our sense of identity. Mm. And when families have rituals, like the obvious one would be eating around the dinner table, you know, how, how we celebrate milestones, things like that send messages about what's important to our young people. So mm. I think, you know, perhaps mm. you're thinking, you're suggesting some of those rituals when they're not playing out in healthy, productive ways. Yep. Um, I think let young people loose in a way they don't they have this sense of not being grounded and mm. not knowing who they are and what matters about them yep. and yep. so they go in search yep elsewhere in unhealthy ways that's right and they again if we go back to the biological driver they suddenly have puberty and and and, and sexual arousal to, to manage we give them opportunity for alcohol probably from the age of 16 we probably you know maybe sooner uh, they learn to drive by 18. There's an incredible, you know, clash within the first few years there of, of what do I do with all this? You know, and I, I, it's, it's likening them giving them a Ferrari when they really should be driving the Datsun first. Um, so we give young men Ferraris yeah. when they really should have Datsuns and before they hop in the Datsun they actually need the licence to drive. And so if we think about that, what do you think we should be teaching young men then about sexuality and managing, you know, all of those things that occur in those mm. middle years? Mm. I think there's, there's a lot of education that does go on, and, but it's in the classroom and uh, it's what we 
need to role model as well. And so when we think about role modeling, it's, it's also what we, what we watch on television, what we give permission as to what they can participate in. It's how we live our own lives and, and our own role modeling. I think it's also that, uh, how we communicate to them about how to do relationship, for instance. I think there are so many conversations that don't get had in the home and they're all more around the softer skills of intimacy, communication, respect that go on. And we try to think, we think we, we role model that in the home, but I think there's some things that, that are implicit in our home life that I think we need to make explicit. And I think there are a lot more conversations we could be having, especially with boys or you know adolescent boys, about those sorts of areas of life so that love is not just sex, it's love is intimacy, companionship, um, romance, connectedness and sex. And exactly for that reason, you know, you're asking how do we have these conversations with young people? I think we need to start to have them long before we're thinking about them having sex mm. or being, you know, even dating or at a time. I always think when you raise complicated or, or tricky complex issues with young people when they're quite young, they're sort of like quite bored by it because it's irrelevant. That's not a bad thing. Mm. You're sort of, it's this incremental exposure to we've had some kind of talk about sex and consent in a very light way at a younger stage yep. when they sort of look at you glazy-eyed because they yep. could care less. Or they're grossed out. Or they're, they're more their fingers out. in their ears. So it yeah, and they've been waiting for that talk for years. Yes. Apparently one day mum and dad is going to sit you down. And, yeah, uh, in the car. And the, the, the loom's <laughs> large and we get anxious and so we blurt out our words as yes. opposed to, you're right, normalising it from yes. the start. So, oh, okay, and incrementally let's, let's talk more about it. Yes. And, and what we role model again is what they can do with each other as well. So mm. if they're talking about... If if you talk about consent, you, you, it has to be informed consent and you have to have a reasonable belief around that that person is consenting. H- how do you do that? Mm. You, know, you just can't do that through body language or um, guessing or assuming. You know, mm. uh, you have to have ex- explicit conversations. Exactly. What are you up for? You know, uh, I was actually talking to some young men about this in their 20s recently and they said we're, we're just having a great time, we're being quite promiscuous but we're really open with the women that we're with mm. that um, we're not looking for a long-term relationship. We really are sort of laying our cards on the table before anything happens. And I really thought long and hard about that. In some ways I thought it was wonderful that they were being so open and honest about what their intentions were. But then I said to them, it would be very easy, I think, for a young woman to hear that conversation and sort of feel that they have to say, me too, yeah, no, I'm just looking for nothing either. You know, it's all just fun and games, me too, one night stand, no worries, when that might not be what they what they want or desire, that mm. they sort of... It's a bit wham-bam, isn't it? They're kind of going along with it because yep. they think that's sort of what they need to do. Yep. So, And the, gr- it's the group element is coming in there. So when you're amongst your group, you're showing off, you're talking about what you, you want to do or capable of doing and, and you're, impress- you're impressing other people. If, when you're one-to-one, you're hopefully having more intimate conversations about what you actually want and what you don't want. They were saying in, every, in a quite a mature way, I am having that conversation with the woman but I was questioning whether the woman would be wanting the same thing or if yeah. they would be actually desiring something more perm- more long-term, more intimate, yep. but finding it difficult to say something like that for fear of feeling that they're needy or not playful enough or then they or whatever. I yep. don't know. So they, I think that some, some of the gender differences came up for me when I heard that conversation because I love that they're putting this topic on the table with, with a woman. But I think women are more hardwired to for love, for, for love sex. and connection yeah. and long term, 
And so what do you do if a, if a guy that you like saying, oh, yeah, we just do it, you know, just yeah, casual just, or whatever. Like yeah, well, I, think, I think a feminist perspective would say that women are being given the opportunity to be the same as well. Like the, the functions of sex are the same for, generally speaking, it's the same for both males and females. The, mm-hmm. the differences aren't as big as I think we, we think they are. I do rehabilitation for for sex offenders and we look at the different functions of sex and there's there's four generally around. Uh, there's a survey in um, a study done in America where they, they surveyed college, US college students and they got, they came up with 150 different reasons why you might have sex and were able to group them into four basic areas. And one was physical, so pleasurable, you're attractive, I really want to go to bed with you. <laughs> Emotional reasons, so I'm connected, I want to get closer and I, I, want, I want to feel um, like we're deepening our relationship. Another two are probably more problematic from a um, consent point of view is that one is around uh, self-esteem. So, you know, uh, if I don't go to bed, I'm I'm going to lose him or mm. her. Um, I feel pressure to. Yeah. Uh, I want to, you know, make keeping if you like. That's and, what I was thinking yeah. with this conversation yeah. I had with the young men. Yeah. And the fourth one is quite instrumental. You know, like I, I want to have a baby or I want to get a job. I want an, an output to change, some yeah. change as a result yeah. of it. I want to be popular, you know, that, that sort of reason. So, mm. so that's more of a, um, a, a darker reason, I suppose you'd call it, rather than being connected or just, you know, enjoying it for the pleasure, for your physical pleasure of it. So, Where we think about what young people want, it seems to be that there is this porn culture, which means that there is, you know, young women going to bend bend over and take it, and there's a bit of a, there is a bit of wham bam that's going on around sexual behaviour, even in consenting relationships. And so, how do we start to, uh, I suppose, help young people and educate them about what an equal and loving sexual relationship looks like? That's not about one person getting it away. Yeah, I, I, I do think this needs to be tackled head on, and there's some good work being done already. There's a lot of sexual health education going on at schools. I don't think it's happening in the family. It does need to happen in that regard. I think because of it, we're an older generation, we're a bit naive to it. You know, there was a Jack Thompson and Playboy magazine in my parents' bedside table and that was it in, in the whole house. Now, you know, by the age of um, 14, I think something like 60 to 70% of children would have seen pornography online. You know, and and what do you do about it? And within seconds, you can do a Google search, and you're into some really, really right. ugly, graphic, um, and just distorted stuff. That, yeah, not that, real. That's not not real. Yeah. That, that you're trying to make you're thinking that 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 might be real. So if they're getting their education online, you're going to set up some massive distortions. I think even for parents who are listening, the four the four reasons that people have sex is it would be a really good place to start yep. for a conversation with your young people. That's not it's not too loaded. It's it's not sort of going to freak them out. It's it's kind of natural conversation why people engage in sex. So that might be a good starting point for yeah, yeah. for parents, particularly yep. with some slightly younger kids who yep. are thinking, I don't know, you know, I can't get past the birds and the bees. Where do I go no, from there? That's right. So some of the stereotypes are that people and and women and men want sex all the time that they're always out for it that's not the case so if that's not the case how do you how do you discuss that you know i don't feel like it tonight or for whatever reason we don't don't try not to take that personally there are many different complicated reasons why people sometimes are aroused and other people other times they're not aroused the gender stereotypes that get set up around in pornography so that the male is generally one in charge and control and it's and it's for their benefit and the female is the submissive one or, or serving, if you like, and that, that's a huge stereotype. You know, like 50 shades of grey kind of setup. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And uh, 
the physicality of the male, you know, that's a stereotype. So it can set up a lot of issues for, for males, for boys growing up to be men, that they're not well endowed or don't have all the muscles and what do I do about that sort of thing. Consent is not necessary in, in sex. That's another stereotype that often it may be that they were giving uh, some indications of consent, but they didn't say consent. They really want it. They're dressed a certain way. They've, they're flirting with me. They're, they're, they're getting drunk with me. They're up for it. You know, that, that, so that's what they think consent is as opposed to, you know, there's probably five more steps along the way before you've got, you have consent with each other. Extreme acts are normalised as well. So mm. I, that's the thing that really worries me. I might, I might, get, might be getting old, but there are so many things that are, are so-called normal now, you know, and that includes, I'm talking about rough sex and pulling hair and those sort of things that go on. And bondage. And bon- yeah, bondage, but also like, you know, choking or BDSM sort of stuff that, uh, is readily available and you go, well, if, you, if I see it, then, then people must be doing it and they must be doing it willingly and with consent because I'm seeing it on the, online and that's, that's not the case. That's another area. Um, foreplay and afterplay aren't important, mm. you know, where sometimes that's the, that's, they're the best parts in one sense, you know, just to flirt with your partner or to be playful, you know, just to a cuddle or, you know, just start, you know, th- those sort of areas or just that lovely feeling afterwards where, you, where, you, where, you're, where you're lying together or you've fallen asleep or you've you know, sometimes the best time is before you go out and have a party. You're much more relaxed if you've done it before a party. Intimacy is not important, so that's, that's another related area. That um, it's just about the physical act. If I get the physical act done, then that's you know that's sex, where the, the partner may not have been satisfied, but they're not allowed to or not given permission to you know um, meet their needs as well. Help us understand what it's like as a psychologist to sit with people whose behaviour is uncomfortable for, for you to hear about, for you to listen to. Yep. And, of course, we know as psychologists we want to bring that unconditional positive regard yeah. to, to everyone that we sit with. Sure. But you already know that this person has done something that has really breached. Horrendous. And there's a victim and there's um, or, or multiple victims, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. How uh, do you work with that? I think one of the, the guiding lights for me is that trying to keep the community safe and and make them safe in the process. That's probably the number one guiding light that goes there. I think also generally there's usually a tragic and sad set of circumstances that that's that's the pathway towards it. Mm. it, it it's not just it doesn't didn't, didn't just happen. There's a lot of you know mental health issues, drug sure. and alcohol issues, and family family up breakup, and, yeah, you know, disconnection, inability to form healthy and safe attachments with others. And, and it comes out in, the, in really tragic circumstances. Um, mm. So so there's a part of you that honours that little wounded child, but there's also a part of you that is working with now a fully-fledged adult who's created havoc and the ripple effect of, yeah. of assault for the victim as well as their loved ones and That's family right. members is Yeah, and when you have a really reaching. good deep dive, and you open up the bonnet if you like, I use, I use the car metaphor a lot, you know, they look like a and that fully fledged adult, but if you, if you look in their adult, their beliefs and their attitudes, their ability to self regulate, they're really impoverished. You know, and and they've never stopped to reflect. They've never sought help. Their help seeking behaviour is, is you know is, is is pretty poor. So um, it's the first time they've ever done that. So, but they're not cho- they're not uh, help seeking now be- necessarily because they choose to. They're being told they're, that- they're mandated. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that even introduces. I'm just comparing. I guess contrasting the work that you and I do, Tom. Mm. That the clients that I work with, they choosing to come to me. Mm. They're purposely saying I'm at a juncture in my life where I want to explore my relationship or my beliefs or my um, yeah. my work. But when um, therapy or treatment is mandated, 
Yep. How do you think that impacts the dynamic between the therapist and well, there's a, the certainly a dance being played. You know, there's 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 some game playing, there's some impression management that does go on, but you can see through that. It, it's not too hard to see through that. You'd be surprised that, that people do say, you know, I needed time out, whether it was a really bad drug habit or a life general a lifestyle that was out of control. That, that they did need some routine, some some time to think and reflect. Uh, and work out what they're going to do. So do you mean being life. incarcerated was yeah. a time of reflection yeah. Yeah. and and they were able to move towards that independently or with the help of With a, the help. Yeah. Of, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. How yeah. do you know that your work with those sorts of people is working, that you can come away from a day like, like that, working with someone like that and know that you're actually making a difference? There's good science around the offending, re-offending rates. So there's a reduction in offending rates if they get a certain dosage of, of rehabilitation. So I think it's really important to know, to think about the investment that, you know, um, the community is making. Um, and is it a worthwhile investment? We're reducing that, that, that re-offensive rate. So there's one less victim now. Let's go into some of your own story, Tom. What, what was it that drew you to this work? Because it's, it's challenging. Mm. Well, I've been doing it for 20 years now and, I enjoy a challenge. I'm drawn like like a like a moth is to, to the flame to to what is hardest, and I think that's just innate. I don't know why it, it's there. I love the saying, "A light shines di- brightest in the dark." I suppose I've got some sort of courage to be able to, to willing to go there, and it's not for everyone. That's absolutely right. But there's light and shade in this world, and um, often we hide our problems in the in the dark. So you know that that's to me often what, what about you know, working with good mental illness is about the willingness to sit with someone in that vulnerable state and say it's normal to be this way or it's okay to be this way and here's a way out. I think that's, in one sense that's a natural um, extension of that. I don't think I could have done this work 10, 15 years ago. I, I wouldn't have had the skills and strategies I, I use for myself to manage myself um, and to keep myself sane and normal and, and a dad and a, and a husband and, and a friend as well at the same time. So I feel lucky to be able to come to it at, the, at this point in my life. Yeah, but otherwise um, I have other work as well. That also helps to, um, you know, tether me to, to the real world, if you like, or, you know, um, what, what, what most of us are going through. Mm. Yeah. How do you care for yourself then, Tom? And, you know, you've obviously seen the dark side, to use your word, or, or the shades of humanity. And how do you stop yourself from walking out into an ordinary sunny day and thinking it's dystopia out there because you've seen yeah. the very worst? It was really hard last year because I did a lot of work from home. So I didn't have that transitional luminous space, so the luminal space between work and home. You know, I I take the train to work or I drive. um, I can think or unthink it. ABC Classic FM was mine. You know, it it was no words. um, It was short, interesting pieces of music. And I would just, you know, mindfully get, get into that space on the way home. And so working from home last year was really challenging. So often I'd be going for a run or a walk. Um, by myself just to you know unpack the day I, I wasn't ready to talk to people physical health is, is great a couple of glasses of wine don't hurt occasionally um, and I've got a very supportive and loving wife um, we're in the same industry similar industry so we can talk to each other and have conversations that not many people could otherwise um, have, have those sort of conversations. Sabina you talk about this universality of the human experience and do you think we all pretty much have similar problems griefs issues is there a lot of commonality around the sort of everyday issues that people are going to psychologists for I tend to say and I know you've heard me say this a lot Mads but a lot of commonality in in maybe not the issue the presenting issue but the desire that sits underneath that to belong to connect to be Mm. accepted to be Mm. good enough 
And I imagine that's true in, in the incarcerated population as well because they are basic human needs. Absolutely, yep. How we go about meeting them yep. may be less adaptive or more damaging or more yep. harmful. But I do, I, I like to think, and that this is something that I hold sort of dear to the way I see the world, is that even people that have performed horrific acts are trying to make sense of their their life in some way, but they're not equipped. Their toolkit's empty. Mm. I think, you know, human nature is, is universal and uh, it's how we handle though the situations that come our way. And for instance, if you've just been rejected by someone in a love sense, what do you do about that? Do you go away and drink away your sorrows? Do you go talk to someone about it? Do you get on with life or do you do more problematic things? Do you hassle? Do you, do you text them 10 times a day? Do, do you build up an, a level of resentment and revenge? You know, and that's where that, that, that darker side of human nature that we don't often come into, into we're in the in the more sweet spot of life generally we don't have those things but at that extreme level we we, we do we all might have a fantasy but we don't act it out you know yes. geez, i'd love to get back at so and so and if i did i would say this or i'd i'd you know key their car or something like something yeah, like but that that's the self-regulation piece yeah, isn't it because that, as you say you know everyone has thought sometimes of <laughs> you know the frustrated yeah but we know how to self-regulate we learn how to self-soothe yeah. and then we make other choices we self-regulate to prevent ourselves from going and doing something problematic to mm. use your word so is what you're saying that we actually all potentially have this, we could behave in a more primitive or, or problematic way. It's there in our DNA as animals, yep. but that we control it. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, without having a religious discussion at all, but I, I like the saying, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. It says we're all human beings and we're all capable of it. Most of us have these things that inhibit us from, from acting on these impulses or urges or desires that, um, that other people don't have those, yeah. Mm. So it's, it is quite a primitive or primal kind of carnal dictate really where we think about some of those behaviours that are playing out in the problem. Yeah. But, but I would also say that so is empathy and consideration is also primal and hardwired. We're thinking about in a healthy mind how would that impact someone else if I acted like that? I don't mm. want to bestow pain on another person in that way. Yep. I don't think we have to just learn that. You know, there's some of, that's as hardwired into us as mm. um, except you'd have to have harm. a deficit in that area potentially to be able to per- perpetrate some of these. Yes, you know these crimes. Yes, yeah, yeah. The, the deficit might be a lack of empathy. Yeah, they're, they're, they're born without that ability, if you like. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Tom, you have uh, worked with young men and, and spent a lot of time with youth and, and rehabilitation and, and you yourself have been the victim of a crime. Can you I, tell home us? A home invasion. Yeah, yeah tell yeah. us, and it was young men, I believe. Tell us what, yeah. what happened. Take us back to that day. Uh, yeah, look, it was an early day in August. I'm, I wasn't tra- traumatised by it. I got some really good help, but I did get a really insight into um, how much imagery it, um, is involved mm. when you're in a, such a tra- potentially traumatising event. So I could take you into so much detail um, about that day, you know, from where I was standing to where I went, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in, in short, I was home with my two kids and um, four young men came and knocked on the front door. I thought it was my son's friends who were early to pick him up to go bike riding to school. It was in the morning? Uh, yeah, yeah, about, about 10 past eight. Um, my wife and other older son had gone to work already and I opened the door and there they were. They, I heard noises outside and they were in our, our garage and they'd grabbed um, weapons 
golf clubs, that sort of thing. And they, they pointed them at, at my head and I came back into, back into the bedroom and I said, what do you want? I pointed to my wife's jewellery. I said, do you want jewellery? Just, just I, I think I was trying to start a transaction just to get some sort of control out of this absolutely out-of-control situation. And he said, oh, we want money. And I said, okay, well, I've got money. And I thought I was trying to be calm at the time. My kids tell me that I was shouting and they were shouting as well, but I thought they were still asleep. Um, so one of them confronted me and another one was behind. Two of them went downstairs and looked for stuff. They grabbed a PlayStation guitar. Um, they looked into the, the bedrooms of, of my, our two kids and, you know, thank goodness, they quietly said to close the door and they said, we, we won't, you know, we won't go, we're not, you know, we won't, we will leave you alone, I think they said. Which is a fascinating in light of the conversation we just had that there is a level of empathy. Yeah, Those children sleeping, we won't leave, the, we won't upset the children, we just want the money, probably drug, drug driven. I'm yep, uh, and just um, general out of control lifestyle. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, you know, they're you know part of a, a suburban culture that lacked male role models. I'm, mm. I'm, I'm doing my being my psychologist now. And but, so, um, what happened, Tom? So yeah. they closed the door on the kids, and then I, I negotiate and I say, "You want money? I can get you money." And uh, I knew my my maximum was a thousand dollars at the ATM. And I said, "Do you want a thousand dollars?" He said, "Yes." And I said, "Okay, but you need to leave." I got I got my tracky pants on and my ATM card and I managed to get them out of the house and that was my that was my thing I just had to get them out of the house away from the kids I grabbed my car keys and I thought I'd be driving my car and they'd be driving their stolen car and then the kid said no I'm driving in your car so I had to be a passenger to him and another one was in the back seat with a weapon and um, you're in the front with him yeah yeah it was a it was a, it was a frosty August morning and there's a couple of look there are a couple of funny stories out of this but he was a 16 year old kid and I can't believe it I, I, I sort of I did that and uh the kids went to the front of their house and they saw me leaving in the car and they're thinking, Dad's trying to chase them away or something like that. <laughs> Rang my wife and um, they were quickly on to the, getting the police and the police were there about 10 minutes later. But um, you weren't. Yeah, I went, to, I went to the ATM with them. Yeah, I mean, so you'd gone. Yeah. So I, the police I, yeah. turn up at your house. Uh, they turned up about three minutes after I got back. Oh. Uh, yeah. So you hop in the car. Yeah. And he, Put, take uh, us into that moment. In, in the meantime, the I have a, I have a fancy sports car and on the way out, they w- one of them wanted to grab it, one of the drivers. I said, no, you're not taking that. We had an agreement. <laughs> and the leader, the 16-year-old said, yeah, come on, let's go. He saw the car, I was getting the car. He goes, what do you do for a living? And I thought, oh, bugger you, I'm going to tell you. You know, uh, you, know you talk about there's an ethic involved here. The more you can make them human and you human, the more you're going to relate to them and, and that makes you safer. Um, I said, I'm a psychologist. And you know what he said? He said, I'm seeing a psychologist for anger management, but it's not doing me much good. So he started talking, telling me, telling, telling me about his life. You're talking about, you know, that the, Velcro aspect of, of being a psychologist or that porousness. Yes. Um, and then what happened when you got to the ATM? I just made sure we, we said, you know, we, we got a deal, we got a deal. I got out of the car, I got my, my cash. The, the display said, would you, like to, would you like to make this your favourite transaction? I went, that's ironic. <laughs> no, thanks. I said, Here's, here it is. And they said, get in, because I, I didn't want to get out to go back into their stolen car in front of the ATM because it's got cameras apparently. So um, they got, got many got to go in, drove 30 metres up, they got out. I went back through my little community. What happened to you in that moment? You hop, you, They get out of the car and you're suddenly on your own in the car and you've just been through that incredibly traumatic. Besides going over in my head the, the number plate, that was probably my number one thing, just to get the number plate to be able to tell the police so that they, they, could, they could be caught. I, I suppose I was just, I, I wasn't thinking you know, I was literally was probably the most mindful moment, just going, you know, I'm okay, you know, I'm okay. And then it was about f- three or four minutes later, thinking they know where I live, so mm. I, I suddenly I didn't feel safe. That you know, I am going to tell the police, so they they will know that I, it's potentially me. I found out later on they went to three or four other houses that morning, 
as well. So the, the, the dispersion of you know blame or whatever um, was, was felt, made me feel better. Yeah, I got back and then you know two or three minutes later, yeah, the police were there and um, yeah, it was, it was, that was a really weird, a really weird time. Yeah, and by eleven o'clock, I'm in the police station making my statement um, over over the radio. They, they got helicopters. There's, there's been a spate of these sort of uh, crimes, and so they had, had set up a task force for this. And they found them by about eleven thirty, and it was all over. But not really all over from that perspective. Has it informed your work in in any way? Because there were some really, really interesting insights there around a sixteen year old saying, "I'm seeing a psychologist for anger management, yeah. and we won't upset your kids." And single, you know, brought up by a single mother, you know, in a, in a difficult suburb. Of Melbourne, you know, most eighty percent of crime comes from three suburbs in Melbourne. You know, we, we don't have to say them what they are, but we, we sort of know. And yeah, it formed me that there's a fight going on in you know in, in young men. You know, there's, there's a part of them wants to to be loving and caring and empathic. Yes. And there's another yes. there's another other, there's a fight going on. The other side is um wants to be powerful and beyond belief and you know um not not follow rules and um do what they want when they want you know and and have no there's no there's no boundaries if you like. And so when you do provide boundaries or you do provide uh, an empathic response or a, but a boundary response, a firm, assertive response, um, they recognise it. Like saying, we've got a deal. Yeah, we've got a deal. That's right. That's right. Do you think they, you they used that. your training in that moment? It sounds like you were really had it together. Um, do you think you used your training? Was that your psychology? Totally. Yeah. 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 Ah. Yep. Yep. He even said to me, you're smart because a, a lot of people try to fight, you know, and, and that's, when they, that's when they get hurt. So you're smart. Just some <laughs> he, fascinating he, exchanges. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's quite incredible. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you the funniest one. I, I was on nine points. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not a drink driver. I don't speed that fast. But I've been, you know, I reckon I've been unlucky. <laughs> 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 We're going through the, the school zones past um, near our school. Uh, it's <laughs> ten, ten past eight in the morning, and I said, "Can you please slow down to forty because I'm on nine points?" As if. <laughs> As if I wouldn't be able to write a letter of sympathy <laughs> to myself. Did he slow down? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know what? I mean, it, that's a funny that's, story. But that's it, how much you're thinking. That's how much you're thinking in the moment. Wow. Yeah. And, Tom, you said when you started the story that you can sort of take it back frame by frame. Yeah. Almost. You know, you said there's a lot of visual yeah. things. Explain that from the way the brain's working in that moment of trauma. Yeah, that's that's a threat system at work. You know, it's that... Um, when we either um, often we fight or we we flight or we freeze, you know that that's the system, and it's it's geared to energize us, you know, to be able to do any of those, um, and all three are incredibly energizing, um, and it's a very visual time, you know, we're not, we're not sort of thinking through this, we just got to act. Your, your visual perception is at its absolute highest, so you know, part of doing trauma work is to is to then integrate that because it has been it's it's disintegrated in in our system, and we we haven't it's been unintegrated. And, and so trauma work is around um, slowly unpacking it to be able to bring that together, the emotion together with the behaviour, with the image, you know, and and put it together and be able to put it to memory um, so it doesn't mm. affect us so much. And did we use it for what, tracking animals or what did we use it for? Surviving. Surviving. around yeah. the wild yeah. you used it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Did, did you actually see someone, did you need some help to to work through that? Yeah, I... I, I Look, having said that, I, I, I talk to people more informally. I suppose I talk to mates because that's it's. I can feel there's still a level of emotionality for you with it. Yeah, no, it's just I suppose it really not not in a trauma way, but just in a sensitizes you just to you know what what's important. You know, and mm. I, I needed my friends at the time, and you know I had them around, and they were you know 
I'll yeah. be forever great, grateful. Yeah. I got a professional to help with my, my children and she was amazing. And um, they had about four sessions with her. She's my supervisor, actually, uh, someone I really, really trusted. And she did some beautiful creative arts therapy work with them. And um, they were able to process it, as we are talking before, just through writing and drawing and, and um, telling a story, you know, and how they would like it to happen, which is you know, the, the therapeutic benefit is, you know, you get your control back and you decide how it's going to end, if you like. Mm. Is um, that so you don't have sort of the what ifs, you're not haunted by the what if that had played out really Badly. It's like, it's like I suppose it's like any narrative. You know, you, you get through a horror story and you, it, it doesn't end. You know, it, it keeps keep, keeps on going if you like. So you, you get a chance to end the story how how you want it to end. I think for my daughter, she was a bit, was a bit more cognitive. She needed to talk more, and they got some great help. And I, I think they haven't been affected by it. They haven't been traumatized by it because of it. So here's to our profession. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah mm. Totally. It's. Um it's an amazing story and powerful and I'm mm. sure has informed you well, personally and professionally and mm. having lived through something like that and felt what it's like to yeah. sit on the other side of a, a crime. Yeah. Tom, fascinating chat. Thank you for, you know, going to the dark side of humanity and, and sharing a bit about your expertise and the work you do. The world's lucky to have people like you working so closely with people who unfortunately, you know, life has turned out to be problematic. Um, we like to end all of our chats with people mm. with, um, with the same question. And the question is, we know life can be complex and dark and light for all of us. Who do you think is doing human really well? I don't have to go very far for that. I think my wife, she works in the, in the industry as well. She, um, she deals with very difficult matters during the day, but she's never far from her heart. She, her, you know, she satellites really closely to her heart in everything she does. You know, I'm very lucky to be to see that every day, and um, and she's also a lot of fun. She's a very funny person as well, so I think she does humour brilliantly. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us, and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 